Hi, everyone. It's been a minute, but we're back. There is a lot going on locally in Utah right now, and maybe we'll be able to talk about that more in another podcast episode. But today we're talking about something that I feel is very closely related. We're talking to my brother, Brett, having a conversation about a podcast episode that was recently released by KUER's Radio West. It was an interview with a man named John McWhorter about his new book called Woke Racism. If you know anything about John McWhorter, or if you know anything about my brother, then you might understand why I wanted to talk to him specifically about this podcast episode. My brother Brett is very much the academic. He spent the majority of his time at UVU um, on student government. He is in social work currently and working towards grad school. He tends to be a little more of a conservative thinker than I am, but we also tend to be able to get on a pretty level place even when we disagree about things. So I thought that he would be the perfect person to have this conversation with because I knew that he was going to have a lot of very different opinions than I have. Um, hopefully you're listening to this after having listened to that specific right. Radio West episode, if not at least yeah. familiarizing yourself with John McWhorter and his but, philosophies. Um, Here we go. I don't know, man. I mean, I guess like I want to hear your your first impressions. I guess I'm, what we, it's not really your first impression because I know you've listened to it more than once now. But just before we start talking about it, I want to get this this podcast episode released October twenty eighth. October twenty eighth by Radio West. Uh, did an interview with John McWhorter about his new book release called uh, Woke Racism. And I did not love it. No. So, no, I was, like, pretty upset about it. I'm, like, kind of annoyed that they gave airtime to that. But I, I want to know, like, what, what you think before I say anything else. That's kind of funny because I figured that that's probably how you would feel. And I don't know if you figured that I would feel that I, I kind of liked it. See, and that, and that was kind of, I was like, you know what? You know who would probably feel very differently about this than me is Brett. So I'm going to ask him. Tell me what you like, why, what you thought about it, like overall. I guess overall, I, I kind of just felt myself agreeing a lot of the time, mm -hmm. understanding his perspectives. I think the, the way I was able to view what he was saying comes from my experience being, you know, at, at the university at a different level than most students might typically be. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know, I actually did a lot with school policy, freedom of speech stuff. We had a lot of stuff changing while I was there, and I was a part of it, especially having been involved in student government and stuff there. At UVU. <clears throat> At UVU. So it was interesting that obviously they started off with the U of C and his experience trying to understand, I guess, like the, the intensity of, of feeling that people had with the ban of, no, it's escaping. I mean, me, essentially but, repealing affirmative action. Right. What, uh, they uh, phrase uh, it a different way. Uh, racial preferences. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because I, I talked to a lot of different people about how uh, universities and colleges can be seen as, as gatekeeping. Okay. Um, because of the affordability aspect of it, not everyone can go. Okay. And yeah. There are so many professions that require at least a four year degree. Mm -hmm. Regardless of what you're going into, um, 
or they even just have <laughs> a track there that you can take for four years and somehow that's more acceptable than some experience. It's not always that way, but like even if you don't graduate with a degree, having gone to school for four years makes a difference. Uh, that's what they tell you sometimes. Okay. Um, I, I always hated the phrase C's get degrees. Okay. Because it means you can, I guess in some people's perspectives, it means you can struggle and have a life and do things that you need to and still get your degree and get a good job and all that. Mm-hmm. But I always kind of perceived it as you can skate and, right. you know, sure, you're paying an insane amount of money to only get a mediocre <laughs> education from what I see it. Mm-hmm. There. There is a degree of buy-in, like mm-hmm. both figuratively and literally, right? Yeah. Um, when it comes to what you're getting out of of your education, what what you bite, are you really getting out what you're putting in? And I feel like grades tend to reflect that because, at least in my experience, um, when I didn't get a good grade, is because I wasn't invested in the class. I wasn't invested in taking the time to read the material or to respond appropriately or whatever, according to the parameters that they wished. Um, and when I did, I, I ended up learning a lot more because it took some introspection and it took um, effort. And I, I did well because I was able to retain that information. I was able to remember the ideas that I had. Anyway, I feel like that's a little off the topic, but... <laughs> no, I mean, but I think, I mean... He doesn't go into it a lot, right? but I feel like your train of thought here pretty much matches the things that he's talking about, which I think like makes sense if you're looking at it from the point of view that the standard is what it should be. Mm-hmm. And I don't agree with that. That I think that that standard works for some people and that like through your own experience, you, you reflecting on it that way makes sense to you because of of how you learn, of how you um, experience the school experience. <laughs> but you and I are very different. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't survive my attempt at uh, university life. And honestly, I have no interest in trying to pursue that because I know that it's not built for me. It's not made for me to succeed there. And At least in the traditional setting. Right. But in particular, he mentions throughout it, you know, the accessibility of vocational training sure. several times yeah. as, as a possible solution, right? And UVU is one of those that has a, a, a larger variety than most places would of, of vocational trainings. Um, and he mentions, like, everyone should be an electrician mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? Right. And or a plumber. Yeah. <laughs> because that's actually pretty... From my knowledge, one of it can be more more lucrative. Just thinking, another report that came out. I still see all the UVU stuff. We were like one of the top, if not the top, in affordability. So there there are a lot of avenues, and some people. The reason I said in the traditional sense of your education, you can go and take classes and declare yourself as not seeking a degree. Okay, and you can just kind of take classes, right? Um, you could be full-time, not seeking a degree. Like with me being on student government, there were liaisons to other student government bodies, mm-hmm. like the International Student Council and the Multicultural Student Council, where they had technically one specific representative on our main body, but had um, their own separate bodies. And from like a, logist- like a practical sense, mm-hmm. it, those positions did provide and do provide scholarships needed scholarships for those students but it's very very little compared to 
you know, a lot of other resources that, that could be had. And I think that when he talks about um, at the very beginning of the UFC and the fact that students were, well, students, faculty in the community probably mm-hmm. um, kind of up in arms right. about, about the issue, he's kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that. Like, I want to be on your side. Right. I want to see things the way that you do. But in his mind, logically, he doesn't see that it's really going to change anything from the current circumstances that they were in with him stating, I don't see that this uh, policy, that this act, whatever it is in place is actually doing what it's supposed to. I don't see any low income black students here. Mm -hmm. If anything, just middle class and above. Right. So I think that's where he's like, well, everyone's (laughs) screaming about this, but are we really taking advantage of it? Is really anything going to change? And I think that's that's like when he kind of segues into everything about uh, what happened, what's happened in the past year, year and a half. Right. That um, that that's really the basis. That was his like uh, what they call it, a thesis statement or whatever. Right. The, the, that opening statement of of everything that we're doing, of everything that we're up in arms about, is being up in arms about it going to change anything? Right. So I. There were a lot of things that he said that made sense to me, but it was his kind of like defeatist attitude about it that made me upset because sure, I think it's 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 valid to interrogate and figure out whether this this program that's in place that's supposed to be helping low income or students of color that don't have these opportunities is it actually doing that? I think that's a fair question to ask, but then to say that like well, it shouldn't be a big deal that it's getting that, you know, the school's getting rid of that because it's not doing its job anyway. To me, that seems like circular reasoning. Like right. yes. it just it didn't make sense to me. Right. And so I wrote a quote, quasi quote. I don't know if it's like word for word what he said. So he, he's like upset because from his perspective, people being hurt about these kinds of policies being enacted, taking away something like that. His perspective on that is nobody will change the standards for poor kids. Mm-hmm. Like from his perspective, it's like, well, we don't want to be patting black people on the head because that's just as racist as anything else. Right. And it's not about patting black people on the head. It's, and it's, and it's not even just um, black people or people of color that these kinds of standards are affecting in that way that it's like, well, if you can't meet this standard, then I guess you really don't belong here. It's all kinds of people. People with learning disabilities or disabilities in general, like we don't all learn the same way. Like to to talk of, well, we shouldn't lower the standards for these people because black people and people of color are just as capable. And to say that they're not is racist. True. But it's not lowering the standard. It's changing it. It's it's making it more equitable, more accessible to more people. Right. And. When you think about it, a lot of these standards that are created by like standardized testing, the things that we go through from elementary school on, were created by studying a specific group of people. Mm-hmm. And that's usually white males. And though there are plenty of circumstances where white males may not uh, succeed based on these standards, there's also plenty of people who are not white males who are also not benefiting from these standards. 
Mm-hmm. And so to say that it's dumb to try to change the standard, it's taking a step back and reassessing how we're doing any of this in the first place. Like, it just seems to me that after years and years of this only working for some people, that at this point we should have tried to reassess and figure out how to make it work for more people rather than acting like reassessing is doing people favors that aren't really favors. Right, right, right. You know? Absolutely. And I agree with that. I I think that the further we dive into his opening statement there, I think we'll find more ways to pull it apart and more, probably more, more than one. Yeah. More than one way that we'll agree on um, of the flaws in his statement, Mm -hmm. because there are so many different needs and I think that the example of higher ed- higher education, you know, university experience has so many nuances. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he goes on further again to not everyone should need to go to a university. Exactly. And I think that's kind of, he addresses that later, obviously with like vocational training and all that kind of stuff right. too. So, but just, so this is my thing, is that where not everyone is going to want to pursue a university education, it should still be accessible to everyone. Right, right. And I think it's still pretty reductive to say that, like, oh, sure, not everyone's going to be able to fit into this standard, so we have these other things that they can, that they can pursue that everybody knows is considered substandard, you know? That yeah. where, where someone like a plumber or an electrician makes a good living... People don't look to those vocations as like, wow, that's something I really want to be unless it's something that they clearly have interest in where it's like, you know, these these fancy vocations like or these fancy jobs like lawyers or doctors. Like we know that there's prestige that goes along with that. So I still have a problem with saying like because I agree, not everyone is going is going to desire to take a university track, but. I, it, we still should be doing everything to make that equitable, to make that opportunity accessible and equitable for anyone who wants to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have lots of thoughts on education, <laughs> <laughs> but, and I so I agree with a lot of what you just said. And I mean, a part of it too, like you're never going to see on TV or a cartoon or anything that a child will see growing up. A movie or even a family movie, you're not going to see a black or brown plumber be the hero of the movie. Oh, for sure. It, it's never that way. Something that he says early on to, well, I think it's the, the host, is the fact that he refers to this, this activism um, as kind of a new religion. And that's addressed later on, too. But um, I think here he's talking about how the fact that it's, it's not helping black people. And he asks John to address that and says that a good majority of the people who find themselves in this category of, of actis, activism, of this woke racism, is, are, are those who tend to be liberal, white, and intolerant of dissent, um, lacking nuance and perspective. And uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting. He said obsessed with punishing dissenters. Right. Which I can see a yeah. lot. Yeah. Uh, I think it just overall for me that it was just like, okay, everyone has different thoughts, different experiences, different contexts. I think it's stuff that we've discussed before in the past where obviously we're not going to agree on anything, on not on anything, on <laughs> everything, but there are plenty of things that shouldn't 
we shouldn't shame each other about for the fact that we disagree. Sure. So, and that's kind of just kind of what I felt like there was an experience that I had in school um, wanting to support a friend. And it's a very difficult kind of situation overall. I'm not going to go into too much depth about it, but the intensity of attack that they felt as an individual. Like the person under scrutiny? Yeah, the person under scrutiny. It led to like almost a a feeling of being attacked myself for simply trying to support them in a hard time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that anyone really ever outright attacked me or said said something that I could perceive as attacking. Right. But it's just those kinds of situations. It's like where I may not agree or maybe I just have a different school of thought like this guy's logic. For some, it may be infuriating. For others, it may finally be that thing for them to actually think about it. Right. It's like, oh, I kind of agree with that perspective. Maybe I should learn more. And then leads them to other other paths, other other schools of thought on the same subject. Well, and like I I agree, and I think that there he does make some fair criticisms of this like wokeness that is Mm -hmm. a thing right now, especially with white liberals. He does make some fair criticisms about that, but I think that and like you said, like we're not always going to agree on everything. But what really bothers me about the way that he talks about this is that I feel like it's it's fully dismissive of the other way of thinking. He, he says a lot of things. That it would seem to me that without having done a lot of research on those things, he's ready to say that, like, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter. That's not real. So one thing he says is that these white woke liberals mm-hmm. want to treat black people different because they can't be expected to behave because of slavery and redlining. And I think that that is such a reductionist point of view that that's that maybe, yeah, maybe some woke white people are not doing the research that they need to do to understand how and why those, that those aspects of structural racism play into things today. He says it in a way that I'm, I'm not sure that he doesn't kind of have a chip on his shoulder about that too but he's obviously like a a successful black man Mm. uh, educated and i he never says it outright but i get from his tone a lot that he thinks that it's not that hard to do what he's done right right which i don't appreciate at all at 1549 he says how much is racism an obstacle to getting past structural disparities and to me that question is like what are you talking about bro the structures are made with racism in mind. Racism is every part of the obstacle, right? Of getting past those structural disparities. It just doesn't make any sense to me to ask the question in that way, unless you don't know what goes in to those structures and how they are based in racism. Right. Right. I, I think I also wrote down that exact same quote there <laughs> um, because I thought about it the way that he stated it and, and the kind of the context in which he was giving it for me came off more of um, the, the last the latter portion of that. Is it that racism created those disparities in the past, but today we need other strategies? It made me think that a lot of the approaches that we tend to take towards things that have happened he says like it's in the past he says that a lot we can't change the past no which, which is true and with how we've been approaching it with how as he says these woke racists tend to approach it it's it's not making change 
Right. So, and I think that's a fair criticism. Like he talks a lot about how, oh, I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but that in this time, the effort of being anti-racist, like, oh, I went to, I took a picture. I I went, I went to a protest and this, I know that racism is bad, but that's as good as actually doing something about it. And clearly it's not. And I know that that is, that's a huge problem. The performative activism, the trying to be seen as doing the right thing rather than actually putting your shoulder to the wheel and doing something about it. Like, I think that's a fair criticism, but to say, I don't know, you, you touched on something earlier that he says that it's in the past and so many of these structures that racism might have caused those disparities in the past, but that we need different strategies now. And I'm like, yeah, bro, because a lot of those racist structures still exist now. So if a different strategy is to change the structures to address the the racial disparities, how is that different? Like, how is that not addressing the racial, the racistness of the past? It it still exists now. Like he says at one point, like something like, well, we can't go, we can't reach back into the past. I'm like, of course we can, because everything about the past informs everything about what's going on right now. You can't say, well, yeah, there were bad things that happened then, but we're fine now because that's not accurate. It's not true. He says at 1626, he says, the people who were racist to kids in school are dead. Mm -hmm. Addressing the racism of some retiree who was mean, who was a mean teacher in 1969 doesn't help anyone today. And that to me is just like mind-blowingly stupid to say. Why? Because it... (laughs) A, it frames racism as just being mean to people. Okay, I, I, which I is see that. It's, so far it's, beyond it's that. Much further than that, especially in that time period, um, uh, that same teacher is could be either the leader or the grandmaster of you know that you know that that society right <laughs> that there. KKK. You know? <laughs> so uh, yes, that was it. Was a very very it was without the proper tact, I think, in making that statement because yes, it was very. Uh, very much reducing that kind of violence, the the level of violence that really was taking place towards that kid in school. Right. And it's also fully dismissive of the fact that though that specific teacher may now be dead, Mm -hmm. there are plenty of students that he taught that he may have influenced to think those things. There are his own family, his, his children, his grandchildren who still might think that way. Mm -hmm. And that those black kids who he was quote mean to in 1969 they don't have the same opportunities it 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 just is ridiculous to me to say that like well racism is in the past we can't change it now but things are different because there's such thing as generational trauma Mm -hmm. and that comes for people of color and for white people it looks different but it's the same and part of that generational trauma is yes, having the mean racist teacher, but to act like that's all it was, like they they're like their redlining didn't exist. Like to, it's annoying to me because there were so many laws created in racism. There was so much de jure racism, and to think that well, just because those laws were changed, that all of a sudden the de facto racism goes away, the cultural habits the social habits all of a sudden that goes away to act as though well the civil rights movement it was it was signed in 1968 69 what 
Civil rights say 64. 64. 64. Gosh, sorry. Yeah. People weren't discriminated against after that. Is that a joke? <laughs> well, the fact that they even had to come back in 65 and change the voting act. Exactly. So a lot of it, and even going back to the university, like that same mindset. It's like, yeah, they had stuff enacted. They had stuff in place. Was it changing anything? Obviously not. No. <laughs> and I, I don't know. Maybe that's. I, yeah, I'm on both sides with him. Like, I'm, I'm seeing his statements in a different light with your, your perspective here, too, because that that same that same idea, like, again, he's, he's taking such a purely logical, like no emotion, no, no, um, none of the trickle down. Right. Of of those experiences, of those statements, is he addressing? Because in that same that same quote talking about how the fact that all those white men are, are 70 now or dead, like they can't hurt you. It's like, they can't, they can't hurt me, but you know, who knows if their great grandson isn't wearing that same robe, you know? Well, and also a hundred percent, they still can. There's videos going around on Facebook and Instagram all of the time about old people getting up in arms about black people in their spaces and calling the cops on them. Uh, true. Yeah. Just because they're old doesn't mean they're harmless. It's true. They're not harmless. And even they, even they so. wield their privilege in a violent way. Right. In those situations, it, it's just it can get out of hand. The, the latter part of, of that statement, when he's talking about how there are things now, you know, there are strategies in place about trying to teach black kids that the that that version of identity isn't productive. Like he, he talks about you know, addressing that the fact that this kid may have grown up in a, a racist setting is amid amidst desegregation. He was talking about now today we're trying to teach that 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 kind of mentality of I need to be angry about what happened before, you know, centuries before. Yes, centuries before I was born, decades before I was born isn't productive and that things like school aren't just you know, for the white kids. Let me let me speak on something there really quickly, okay. though, because it, it's something that I was thinking about when you were talking before, talking about how his his view of this is purely logical and doesn't have any of the emotion in it. Mm -hmm. And it's silly to an extent to me to say that, because I know that's what he thinks, clearly. Right. Obviously, but there there's like scientific <laughs> studies to talk about how generational trauma exists in people's bodies. Right. In the way that whether they knew about what happened or not, it still exists in them. And that's something that is so, that I know seems kind of like, ooh, like spooky. Yeah, right. But it's like, it's, it, it's silly to me to pretend like, I don't know, like what he says, that it, it's not productive to, to act like you need to feel that way. I don't think anyone's acting. Right. I think that it comes with the territory. And to ask people to just get over that is pretty stupid. And he says over and over again, I'm not one of those people who's just telling black people to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. And I'm like, you're kind not? Of, kind of you're not? <laughs> Explain to me how you're not doing that by saying, get over it, essentially. It's the same thing. Yeah. Kind of going further on the, the physical aspect of things and generationally, how things change like um with the great depression mm. something that i feel like is pretty well or at least widely known is that uh, the simple little fact of during the great depression people their bodies tended to 
change and adapt so that they could maintain weight properly. Right. With being so starved. Right. And generations later, those their their children, grandchildren, great grandchildren tended to be obese because they mm. kept that necessity. It was like to added make, to yeah, their to DNA. Weight. Exactly. It changed their it's DNA. Evolution. It, changed, it changed things physically. And so things like generational poverty, generational trauma, generational, there's so many different things that are happening now. Stuff that, you know, people that I've worked with that are, they're, they're stuck in a place and they want things to change, but they, they haven't had the opportunity to do so. Now in this area, maybe one out of 50 people that I served were black, but, uh, or of any color. Right, right. <laughs> but, but it exists. And so I, I think with a lot of his argument, He's he's focusing so much on the intensity of emotions because he's so obviously clearly without it, right? Right. Quotations there. Without it because it's a purely logical argument. I think if you think the way that he does, which is pretty close to how I do, like logically thinking, not I don't agree with everything he says. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But if you have that pattern of thinking. Right. Um his argument it was very agreeable to it. Right? right. Which is what frustrated me because I know that especially with the conversations that I've had with people, that something like this is going to make perfect sense to them. And it's just like Candace Owens all over again. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm like, are you for real? <laughs> like this is Doug Fabrizio. This was the last thing that we needed to hear on radio West. <laughs> yeah. Thanks though. I don't know. I think overall, his, I don't know, I felt like his issue the entire time was kind of a, almost kind of like, we don't need these other people to progress the issue because they're not really progressing the issue anyway. So stop being, trying to be woke, you racists, you know? Right. And, and that's, that's where I was just kind of like, yeah, I, I can see that. Quotes that I've always kept in my head, uh, one of them was uh, by Theodore Roosevelt, is uh, complaining without posing a solution is just whining. Right. And, and that's what a lot of what people have been doing or are, are still doing. It just sounds like whining, and it really is just whining, because are those people active in their communities in any way whatsoever? Exactly. No. Are people... So, context for our area, or at least my area, um, 13% of the entire population of Orem voted for uh, the city council. Like, period. Period. That came out to vote. That was the voter turnout. Yeah. It was just under 13,000 people, which happened to be 13%. Wow. And it was ridiculous because (laughs) who got voted in? A bunch of old white people. Exactly. And, uh, I mean, honestly, realistically, did any of the people that I voted for have a chance? No. Um, they didn't have access to the same kinds of funds. They, they're not <laughs> fully retired old white people. Right. So. Um, Who have all the money and the time to be able to dedicate to these things. Right. All the money, all the time, the biggest signs, and unfortunately have the most in common with Orem right now because it's a bunch of old white people. Exactly. So are things going to change? Not in the next two years. Hopefully they change further um, as I continue to grow and amass my education experience in the world and with different populations. It's always my hope that that things will change. Right. But it's not just a hope, you know. I'm active in ways that a lot of people, I mean, I always say my age, and I'm older now, I'm 27, right? Still, but, though. Yeah. Like, I remember when, what they made you the 
rep or delegate or whatever you I'm, call I'm it. I'm a state delegate right now. State delegate. Like, I was like, oh, sorry, what? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Yeah. And I don't know, like, I'm proud of you for, like, a lot of the things that you do and a lot of the ways that you're involved. And, but you, but you, you obviously, like, have to know, like, being in those, in those spaces and being one of the only, mm-hmm. that even being active locally, politically, is a privilege. And that it's not accessible in the way that it needs to be. Like, I am 100% for change happening where you are, mm-hmm. like lifting where you are. But it's so tricky. Like you said, the people that you voted for that were running didn't really ever stand a chance yeah. because the, the access is not the same. The equity is not there. And that, that's why it annoys me that he acts like, I don't know, like he's special kind of i guess for doing and it's like but i also get that it's like it's another reason why it annoys me that he was like what black people need is vocational training be a plumber be an electrician and not to say that people who are plumbers and electricians can't also be local community leaders but at the same time it's like the way that our government is set up even locally like you have to know things you have to be able to read between the lines about stuff you have to be able to and that's that's not accessible the fact that like to to run for a for a a position that's really going to make a difference like i was listening to another podcast episode um state street they're the right right local political podcast for npr that they're talking about trying to create a pipeline for women of color to run for local and like federal positions but it seems like i don't know i think about it all the time and it's like it almost seems like you'd have to have a law degree in order to be able to get to those like federal positions to understand like there's buy-in like you said i'm not gonna lie that that tends to be true but believe it or not two of the three candidates that i wanted in in there one of them was a lawyer Mm. she's currently i think focusing on being a mother but she is a lawyer right she's an advocate for children in the community mm-hmm. what did any of those old white people do for anyone exactly except for make money exactly but it's that's one of the things that it's like it's just i, I it's like i go back and forth it's like obviously i want to be involved in the community like i'm trying to do what i can to make to out to, to get into the outreach and into my own community and figure out how to make a positive difference but it is so difficult because the access just isn't there it's just i mean it's on its face like anybody can do this but it's not actually accessible in that way and that's true going back to what you're saying though of like you feel like they would probably need a law degree i was like yes they probably need familiarity with not only the local um policies and the local platforms for both both of the major parties at, at least but they'd probably need some some background in things like constitutional law and, and a bunch of other stuff that would be relevant um to, to making change exactly I, I think that the, the biggest reason that we have the average joe the uh, the man of the people who who doesn't succeed in those positions if they if they do get in mm-hmm. right and I say the average Joe, but uh, how about the the, the the not so average Joe? Right. <laughs> might not have enough experience, might not have, well, at least what they might deem the right kind of experience. Exactly. To, to affect any change. They go in with all these ideas 
and people maybe they voted for them on their platform because yeah that sounds so good mm-hmm. but what they don't realize is that they're fighting the first you know 16 years of people who may have been office in, in office before them um, that have set things in motion right and fortunately more local politics and stuff have shorter terms right um so there, there is some change um, that can be done in a, a shorter period of time. But right now, the setup really is towards people just being comfortable. Like, yeah, you know, they haven't, you know, screwed us all. We haven't burned to the ground as a city. So sure, let's like, keep voting them in. Right. Or um, I, I don't know. I, don't, I honestly don't know what, what people look for. Around, around 6,000 people saw in in the white people right. that, that got into office. I, right. don't, I don't know what they saw. Um, and it, this might sound cynical, but it might have just been enough that they're old white people who... They look like them, yeah. Right. They look like them. They sound like them. They, they said the right thing. Right. I think that part of what he was saying with the, the, the three opportunities, the three major solutions, right, which now two of the three are escaping me. <laughs> the only one who can think of is vocational training. Um, ending the war on drugs. Oh, okay. Ending the war on drugs. That's a big Which game. I almost would read his book just to understand what his idea of ending the war on drugs is. Right. Because from what he states in the podcast, I'm like, bro, what the heck are you talking about? Right. Because it, it honestly made it sound like, so this is another thing he said, maybe it will kind of add to it. That he's like, people are freaking out about police brutality, but let's talk about black on black crime. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, Candace Owens, is that you? Because <laughs> he just, he's like, you know, racial profiling, sure, that's a thing, but what's really killing black people is other black, black people. people. And acting like if they would just stop doing that, a lot of things, like he, he the way that he poses, like, the end to the war on drugs. Like, I'm like, what does that mean to you, mm-hmm. John McWhorter? Because what I'm getting from what you're saying is essentially just that, like, if black people just got vocational jobs, then they wouldn't sell drugs anymore and everything would be great. But that's ignoring the fact that it was the federal government that brought drugs into the areas in the first place. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> explain to me how that worked. Like, what the heck? Yeah, I honestly in my head I was like, well the only way that that really makes sense is if you make their jobs truly more lucrative than dealing drugs. Right. If you open up the everything that he said, again it's like idealistic and idealistically uh, in the ideal world, I can agree with that. Right. But there's so much more that needs to happen at base level. Yeah, because that's not the world we live in. Right, exactly. Those changes can't exist today. They can't. Right. Ending the war on drugs will not happen tomorrow. No. Especially when it's perpetuated. Well, and it's so not like it's up to black people right, to, to end that. the war on drugs. Right. Like, what the heck? And, and that's why I'm saying I think his book is trying to address the, the woke, the woke people. Right. Right. And that's why he's saying, like, well, you guys push for that instead. I think I, and that's turning my perspective a little bit. If he is speaking to liberal whites which there are plenty of them <clears throat> in local and, uh, well, maybe not enough in local, but uh, <laughs> plenty in local and, and at the national level, right, as our representatives, that um, could be in a place and probably should be doing more uh, actionable things to 
affect that kind of change. Right. To, to reduce the amount of <laughs> basically necessity for drugs. I'm going to go a little bit more into my educational background here, too. Um, funnily enough, the most I learned was probably in a 1010 class on psychology. I'm not a psychology major, but um, <laughs> I learned a lot in that 1010 class. And uh, one of the things that I, I kind of dove into was um, kind of the experiments that they did on not only mice, but soldiers. I don't know if you know that in Vietnam, they actually gave soldiers a ration of drugs, of cocaine and heroin. Because everything that they were seeing was so brutal that they're like, they need an escape. Um, But what was happening was not what most people would think. When they returned, I think the statistic, I don't know that I could actually find it, but I think they said like less than 20% continued using drugs after returning from war. Now, I feel like that number changes is like if they came back from war, right? Right. (laughs) Um, the, The situation, yes, it was a drastic they needed an escape from it. That's what a lot of people go to drugs for, um, apart from addiction, right? When right. They get addicted when they get hooked on it. It's it's from that either euphoria or the numbness, um, the release. Yeah, the the release of dopamine, you know, that they need because they're not getting it from society. There's uh, an experiment that was called like Rat Park, um, where they had morphine drips. Okay. Um, like the little. Gerbil water bottle yeah, things. water bottle things. I was like, I don't know, what is that thing called? Uh, I have no idea. They had them accessible. Okay. And um, when they gave them, so maybe for your listeners, I'm going to say the sex word. <laughs> I don't know. Um, they, when they, they said, okay, if we give the basis desires, um, all the avail- availability to these rats, um, sex, a company and all the food that, and water that they would need, will they still turn to the drugs? Mm. And in Rat Park, they observed that like maybe two times each mouse went to the morphine, but they never got addicted to it because they didn't go to it more than a couple of times. Right. Because they had everything else that they needed in right. their little society, in their, in their environment. But when they deprived those same mice from or rats, whatever they were, from those those base things that people need, that, that beings need, right? they became addicted. They turned to the thing that would cause or uh, would allow them to no longer be feeling the, the disparity or the pain that right. they had. And <clears throat> so if you think about that on a, a greater social level, yes, there's going to be a lot of different factors. But if they have, if they build and help build and maintain an environment where people can not only feel needed, but appreciated and um, not judged on the poor things that happen in life or the poor decisions that they make. Right. Based on their circumstances. Exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> then, then so many things will change. Right. So something, fortunately, that I've had the experience of, of being involved with is um, something called uh, mental health court. And uh, I don't know how far they went with this because they were just having or starting conversations when I uh, left that position specifically. But the idea was that they're having conversations with some of the things in our, uh, the services with the county, mm-hmm. where instead of just picking up someone and taking them to jail, adding more charges onto them, that they, so the mobile crisis outreach team become involved. <laughs> 
they could go to a place where they need can talk to someone, have some a warm place to, to sleep, to mm-hmm. just kind of be, some company to be around, someone to talk to if they need, for uh, maybe a couple hours, maybe almost a full day, you know, whatever it needs to be, rather than just hauling them off and, you know, going through the process and, and having them go before a judge and all this other stuff, that they would have the opportunity to uh, have that preventive well, slightly preventive envelopment that that's small community built around them to help protect them, help help them meet those base needs again. And then at la- at a later time, if, if they're <laughs> going to continue committing crimes and I mean, that's what's going to happen. Right? right. And obviously that's on a, an aspect of, of like mostly solely mental health and maybe some substance use issues, but overall, uh, thinking of things like generational poverty, of gangs and gang violence, um, when you create an environment where they don't have to turn to a gang for camaraderie, for money, for opportunity, for the, the pleasures of the world that should be available to everyone, right? You know, like it, warmth, a warm bed, mm-hmm. you know, warm f- food. Uh, it's just, it's so crazy to me. And uh, there are so many perspectives and issues and things that go into <laughs> what, I, what I would assume it, his statement regarding the, like black on black violence, all of that, it can be changed, but it's it's not going to change today. It's not going to change tomorrow. Right. And and his three solutions like reducing or ending the war on drugs, like that's that's a proposal, not a solution. Right. So it's it's a proposal of a, a society that we should strive for, but it's not something that's going to be achieved by that being the solution. Right. Uh, what was the third one? Oh, teach everyone to read oh, phonics, which I'm like, huh? What does <laughs> I, it have to do with anything? I kind of had to look it up because I was like, what does that mean exactly? But the the stuff that mom used to use uh, yeah like, that, that that's... hook it on phonics <laughs> work it for me um of like i i don't understand if anyone is using like if, if anyone's using a different method of teaching how to read i don't know why they're doing that i don't know how it's more effective or how school districts can um justify you using it if it's not actually providing readers and if that's the case, again, you got to look at uh, school administrators, you got to look at school district um, representatives, mm-hmm. and you got to look at local legislators and everything that's going into that, even at the federal level. At the last state convention, um, I spent a good chunk of time talking to one of my friends who I got to know at UVU. Um, he graduated in, but I think that he wanted to focus on like junior highs, you know, okay. junior high school. Okay. And he graduated in like administration or no, as a teacher. Oh, okay. History. Okay. And in my conversation with him, I was like, Hey, what are you doing right now? And he's like, well, I'm not teaching. I was like, Oh, why? He's like, because of the federal regulation and everything that is required to be taught Uh, going again to like standardized testing and all the information we should know or need to know. And I'm like, honestly, okay. Except for those who may be teaching it, who remembers that stuff? So I've actually done some learning about the way that like, uh, education works at like a district and then like the state level mm-hmm. it's like they have the, the federal standards mm-hmm. or whatever and then even like a, a state level the standards and each uh, district decides how how they'll build the curriculum mm-hmm. to meet those standards 
the difficult thing though is with my understanding of it when you go into you know the 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 physical changes that are happening in a student's body you know around the age of 13 to 16 mm-hmm. all of that stuff that's going on you at least like my friend wants to be it wants to be able to affect change uh, to a degree, right? Like he's not trying to change these kids, but he's trying to ensure that they are able to take greater accountability in themselves for history, you know? Right. Because obviously we're running into so many issues because we don't remember our history ever. We're not taught it to begin with. Right. And it's funny because like from the beginning of my education, I feel like they were always saying history repeats itself. History repeats itself. I'm like, why? Because we refuse to learn. We refuse to remember and we're selective about the things that we teach. Right. Um, so his, his frustration, I, you know, I felt, I felt for him because I'm like, that's, that's, that's really rough. Like, it would suck to be so passionate about something and to spend, you know, years preparing yourself to be an educator, to, to go into a profession, have that be your career or intend for that to be your career and really only feel shut down doing what you thought you would love. You know, right? Wait, phonics. <laughs> that was a, a really interesting thing. Well, he like barely talked about that. <laughs> he didn't really talk he about didn't. it. So yeah, I'm like, for I'm phonics. very confused about. He's like, yeah, just teach everyone to read the right way, right. quote unquote. Which I'm like, okay. And he's 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 a professor of linguistics, right? So I can see um, how he did things. Even I was like, I was typing his quotes. I had to go back and like delete the words I used because he used a different word, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's a good word. Um, <laughs> but I I think. A part of also where his his logic tends to come from, uh, just teach kids how to read properly in the first place. Mm-hmm. That, sure, reading is probably the basest way of preparing a child for education, right? And to enter the world. And the system that's in place. And that's, that's kind of where I'm like, okay, the buck stops there, because you can prepare your child all you want, but they're still going to have to enter a system. Well, they they don't have to. But they're most likely, because of most typical situations, be it a single parent home or a, a both people are working, mm-hmm. um, they will most likely put their children or child in the traditional education system right. where uh, critical thinking isn't taught until you're in college. Right. Right. Um, you're told to absorb all the information and regurgitate it. And your creativity is never, unless you've got a really good teacher, um, a very kind teacher who, you know, can really pay attention to all 40 of her students, you know, or his. Um, depending, you know, the situations are just so different. It, it, it's one thing, too. I feel like it speaks to uh, his his mindset and his perspective to even say that there's one right way to teach someone to read. True. Because again, that's going back to like, this is the standard and everybody needs to meet this standard. And if they don't meet this standard, then they are substandard and go do some meal job that nobody wants, you know, because it's like, what are you, you know, what about kids with learning disabilities like dyslexia or right. kids with ADHD, whatever it is like there's there's so much about the way that he talks. It is just like there's one way that things should be. And when they're not that way. That's why things are the way that they are now. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, do you even hear yourself? Like, what? He talks about about people fighting against racism in the way that they are now being disempowering, saying that like nobody's he says nobody said 
that the conditions in the U.S. since 1968 aren't enough for people to succeed. I'm like, who are you? Who are you listening to that you're saying nobody said that? Because I feel like a lot of people are saying that you're just not listening to them. Hmm. And he continues to say, well, we, white people at this point are just he says they're taking what black people say at face value. And that's racist because that's not that's not how we decide what's true or what's right or not is taking things at face value. So so in that context, too, the the I, I do agree to it when he was talking about the proper things to do. I feel like he had just quoted something from White Fragility. Oh, um, just before he had made, you know, he, he talks, he talks about, um, okay. So he says black people need to be assumed not to be up for tests. Black people need to be assumed not to be able to watch white people cry because it takes the spotlight off of us. Right. right. And they says like Robin D'Angelo says in her book, which like <laughs> yeah. she's a whole other thing. Right. Right. But at the same time, I'm like, I feel like it, it's just so ignorant of any experience, any black experience that's not his black experience. Right. Right. Because, yeah, it, it's super annoying. Not even being a black person, being a person of color, it's super annoying to tell someone, you're doing this thing that's hurting me, and then have them unravel. Because now all of a sudden, they're a bad person. True. I, I'm like, that's not what I said. I didn't say you were a bad person. I said, this thing that you're doing is hurting me. Yeah. The well, easiest thing to do at that point is to say, wow, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was doing that. I will, I will figure out how to fix it. Yeah. The end. Yeah. Um, uh, let's make a plug for white fragility real quick. Like it, it, there's a lot of different things that I agree or maybe don't agree with in the book. Um, I think overall when my white friends ask me about the book, because I bring it up in conversation, I'm like, Oh yeah, white fragility. I'm like, Oh, Hey, like I've heard good things about the book. Should I read it? I'm like, yes, because at the very least it can arm you with, mindset and some vocabulary to then address the feelings that you're having as a white person and also strategies and 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 conversation tips i guess really on how to better approach the subject of racism and um a non-white experience right and i've I've talked about briefly on the podcast before that there are a lot of issues with Robin D'Angelo and the way that she's doing her whole thing. So if that's something that's really important to like white people, I would say like to be aware of what they're doing and how, how, what they're doing that plays into the oppression. Mm-hmm. I would suggest white supremacy and me by Leila Saad. Okay. And it even has like a workbook that you can buy to go along with it because it, that's, I feel like that's not only a much more effective way to actually figure out how you're contributing to the problem, but it's also not a white woman profiting off of black people's knowledge and pain. Right. True. So. Okay. Cause I, I cause I, I read uh, white fragility first before I read anything else. Yeah. And that's why I, I suggested it to you guys. So getting back to the quote though, you said it was right after that, him mentioning like Robin D'Angelo and then, he says black people are not expected to adhere oh, to basic oh, standards yeah, yeah. of the law. Yeah, yeah. So, so he, he goes on this little rant, right, about basically the wrong way to approach these things, like making exceptions um, and kind of going with that, taking things at face value. He's going down one path, right? And again, logically, linear, linearly, it makes sense, right? Right. Saying by not taking things at face value, you, you're like you, you wouldn't 
only for a certain amount of time of your life are you going to take things at face value from your parents, from your teachers, oh, sure. from, from your siblings, from your friends. As you finally reach, and it's a, I feel like it's different ages for everyone, but as you finally start to have like critical thinking introduced into you, hey, you should question things, not just question things, but so that you can learn what, what you feel is, is right outside of like the moral right and wrong, right? right? Um, but what we can learn is, is proper and good for you and, and healthy for you, right? And what is what is unhealthy? But I also think there's even something to be said about questioning what has put as a standard as what's morally right and wrong. Because okay. one of the first things that I think of of when he's talking about black people are not expected to adhere to basic standards of the law is the use of marijuana. It's it's something that came to my mind that it's like yeah people are are fighting for the legalization of marijuana, mm-hmm. but they've been made illegal because they were mostly used by black and other people of color. Mm-hmm. So it's like is it really wrong to use marijuana or did they was just it say wrong? it was right was it made to be wrong anyway that's just my little no, no, no. I, I get that because um so i think with his preceding statements as to not taking things at face value it was it's not going to be right it, like the white person shouldn't feel like they should just take everything from a, a black person or a person of color um, at face value because that's not what you would do with another white person. That's not what you would do with anyone. And it's not what you should do with anyone. When Once you, for lack of a better term, know better, right? Um, you should be able to take everything with a grain of salt. You uh, understand that it's not your experience. Um, if it is actually their experience that they're speaking of, then then obviously there's some, it's, it's nuanced. It's different. Right, because that and that's, that's my issue with it, is that like for so many people right now, for so many white people specifically listening to the experience of black people and how black people feel like things need to change. They're speaking from their experience. They're not pulling it out of nowhere. Right. And to say that, like, I feel like obviously to be questioning and to take things with a grain of salt when it's appropriate. Right. Because if I'm going to sit here and tell you I'm on my period and this is what cramps feel like, are you going to tell me? I don't think that that's true. (laughs) You don't have any context. Right. For you have no right to tell me what it feels like. So for you to say like, no, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt. It's going to make me want to punch you in the face. Yeah, And I guess when I was thinking about the way he was stating it and when I was hearing him state it on on the podcast, I wasn't thinking of of a person sharing their experience. I was thinking of like, we're trying to address the situation. This is the way that it needs to be done. Right. The perspective that I had on his statement in the moment was that he was saying, if I were to say I'm the authority on all things because on all things towards addressing racism because I'm black, which almost he kind of is. Yeah. Right, by proposing his three exactly. solutions. I, which is, is pretty hypocritical yeah. for the stance that he's taking, which is what kept hitting me in the face <laughs> as I was listening to this is that like. You are contradicting yourself at every turn. That's really cool, though. And maybe maybe even because of how his argument is or uh, how his mind is, too. Maybe he's not trying to contradict himself, but maybe even saying, even me. But he never does say that. No. He doesn't say that. He says, to a point, at one point, like, I might be wrong, but I don't think I am. I don't remember. I might be wrong, but probably not. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's pretty pompous. Yeah. Um, And... Again, as we've talked about you know, his proposals for things, it's like, obviously, not everything is going to be accomplished. Who knows that any of that is going to be accomplished, right? 
at least widely, you know? Right. Because every place is going to be different. One of the great things about this country that can also be somewhat detrimental is the fact that every state functions as its own entity, right? right? Yeah. So that, that would really be the only barrier for this, like, widespread solution to racism right Right. at least uh, the effects of racism because like he he says himself that we're not going to eradicate racism it's that's not going to happen it can lessen and and that like i really do that that's probably the only thing that really truly resounded with me because i i do agree that they're people are people they're going to do what they do they're going to learn from imperfect people imperfect uh, ideas um, prejudices and biases that hopefully, hopefully can be changed as they grow, as they recognize that that's detrimental to the world around them. Right. Not everyone changes, right? Because it's, it's not easy to change. It's a hard thing. Right. And if anything, I wish that he had tried to address the level of difficulty of, of trying to change. Oh, for sure. Because as much as he's talking about, oh, all these, you know, woke white people, white liberals that are trying to change things, like, you guys are so unsuccessful at what you're doing. In fact, you're not even helping black people. It's like, okay, and you propose your three solutions, and I can, I'm probably, maybe he goes more into depth in his book. I already got it on Audible. I'm going to listen to it. Just to see how much more in-depth he does go, if he does go. Right. Because, at least with what he gave, it was, it was very unsatisfying. Huh. So, if anything, <laughs> his statement is... You white liberal people kind of suck at helping out. Focus on something else instead of trying to, you know, help your black neighbor, whatever, right? Which I meant that in like a general sense, but if you actually did help your black neighbor, it probably would be a better thing than trying to affect the masses. Right. right? So this is this is one thing that like I'm thinking about as you're talking about that is I think a big part of the problem that mostly people don't recognize or don't want to recognize is that the way our government is set up is fully insufficient to actually create change in that way. And I know that everyone thinks that like socialism is a dirty word (laughs) and I'm not saying that our government should become a socialist government, but when you think about it, community is socialist and the way to actually create change is to be involved in your community. So where obviously like things need to change in a de jure way, like the laws need to change. We've seen before when the laws change that the outcome is pretty much the same as it was before because there is no social backbone to the way things are changing. And I think, I think there is something to be said about like cancel culture being a thing that's like not super effective with how, how much vitriol people can spew for seemingly no reason a lot of the time but i am not against calling people out right because if if there's not going to be accountability accountability in the way of law then let there be accountability in the way of the community Mm -hmm. of the social aspect so where he has nothing but you know bad things to say about people who are it's one thing that annoys me too is that he's like yeah people are you know, Amy, whatever, in the Central Park or whatever, that she got fired from her job for doing nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. It's these little things that make a big difference. So where it might seem extreme that she lost her job, I think it's setting a public example that we won't put up with this anymore. It's it's kind of, and he even says it, like vigilantism, Mm -hmm. which I don't think is always a bad thing. 
as long as it's 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 done i think with the right intent <laughs> well, yeah but with the right intent like that you're not trying to destroy people right you're trying to usher them to another way right and so i i don't think that cancel culture in the way that it happens is always effective but i myself have called people out now and then and it always just because of the way that especially around here <laughs> the social aspect works it just blows up in my face and they got off scot-free that's pretty stupid i think that there's a lot to be said about how history repeats itself the laws were changed back then we can change the laws now but if socially there's no change there's no point no yeah no no effect will come from that uh, kind of judging on the social aspect of things community as well and then going back to local stuff like politics as much as socialism is a you know dirty word, uh, so is and now my mind has gone blank. Oh, politics! That was easy. <laughs> I was like, no, politics I, is I, a dirty I word. I don't talk about politics here. It's so divisive. here specifically, yeah. that politics is a dirty word. You don't talk about politics, and you don't talk about religion, but you do talk about religion. You just don't talk about politics, right? That's actually the funny thing too, because most conversations about politics end up being about religion. Oh, a hundred percent. And uh, I don't know why that ever is a thing um in fact even at the very end of his conversation was about religion too and like uh, apart from the fact that this social woke this woke racism has become a new religion and that his statement of like anthropologists like uh what he said he clarified the statement of like uh if an alien na- were naive to, naive right. anthropologists <laughs> if an alien were to you? land on this planet right now and see this they wouldn't know it any differently from the presbyterian church down the road <laughs> right but i'm like Okay, I think that, sure, there, I think there's definitely potential for people to just kind of mindlessly follow what anybody else is saying and not be critical of what they're hearing. Mm. I think that to, to an extent, like when it's appropriate, be critical. Don't be critical of someone else's life experience. That's not for you to judge. That's not for you to value or devalue. And so I can see in that way where he talks about it as a religion, but it's also interesting to me that he verbalizes it that way because really what he's talking about is kind of like cultish behavior mm-hmm. and to auto- just like put those on the same thing, like religion and cults are the same thing. And I know that there's a lot of people that feel that way. And I think that in a lot of different aspects like that can be true. Mm-hmm. It is interesting to me that he chose to verbalize it that way. Yeah, yeah the comparison he made with religion and the, the fact that there really was based, it seemed on the fact that it's very performative, right? The fact that the, the Pharisees and the fact that they were all about the, the letter of the law and not about the spirit of the law, that they're not about actually doing anything, but more about showing sh- that showing and the, the, the chest pounds and all of that, you know, I'm so righteous, you know? Right. So think, thinking about it in that aspect too, like I don't, Again, I really I'm I'm interested to to listen to his book because I I want to see if he actually addresses <laughs> the root of that issue of the fact that yes these people are are being very performative but 
I don't know that it's always for, for performance sake. Right. You know? Right. It, it may be because that's the only way that they know how to do it. Exactly. And when you think about that, you're talking about white liberals, educa- ten, ten, typically educated, educated people, people. Yeah. Who, who should be aware and know how to affect any change. But, but we, uh, don't, we don't educate about that. <laughs> we don't teach the real way to do things. We don't teach what really happened. We don't teach how to learn from that and do it differently. Right. Because because <clears throat> educationally, education systems tend to kind of suck because they don't want... Anyway, we're trained not to think critically, and we are... are trained to simply absorb and regurgitate the information, not absorb, I guess, uh, consume and regurgitate the information that's just needed for whatever exam that we're supposed to take. Right. And that's why I think that it tends to be so performative. Right. Because the same way that in one of my classes, you know, everyone's giving presentations and it's just kind of like the, the base robotic like a fifth grader could have done that. Right. It's like, sorry, we're in our fourth year at a university. <laughs> um, we're all over the age of at least 21 here in this room. And you just gave me a presentation that a child could have done. Um, that I think that's, that doesn't extrapolate on things. Exactly. That doesn't, that's, that's, that's perpetuated the, their, throughout the rest of their life. Right. So um, if they don't go into an area of or a career that will push push for more from them if they don't happen to have a mentor or a boss that asks for their insights and their opinions and please like tell me why i'm wrong you know Mm. then they're they most likely will never have anything more to say well that's why i think it's it is so key that we continue to fight for these things to be taught in the schools because i feel like a big part of why things remain at a surface level only performative is because people want the access to be easy Mm. but the the process of unlearning what you know and learning something that a lot of people are saying that's not real Mm. it's tricky it's hard it's like why i drove myself into the ground earlier this year trying to learn all the things that i don't know because i was so fully I was so like painfully aware of the fact that there were so many people around me that weren't interested in looking beyond the face value of things. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that it's like, you know, as adults, we have so many other responsibilities, so many other things that we have to be doing that to make this a priority is kind of a life change. It's a, I don't have any hobbies anymore. <laughs> you know, it was like, this is my hobby. Like people, ask me all the time like oh i know you like to read like what do you read i'm like mostly nonfiction. i don't know that you would love any recommendation that i gave to you because most people that i talked to are like oh i love fantasy i'm like mm, not my vibe ever right but especially not right now and it's it's just one of those things that it's like people want the access to this learning to be easy they want they want to see it on instagram they want to see it wherever is it there they where they are already mm-hmm. And so it's like there's all of these DEI and anti-racism educators on the Internet, everywhere you can find them. They're on TikTok. They're everywhere. But people only want what they can get for free. They don't want to pay this person for the time and effort and the knowledge that they have because it's not seen as real in a lot of ways because it's based on experience, because it's based on things that people have experienced and felt emotional about. It's not logical enough for people that we don't, we don't put the value on it 
that it requires. Which it's so crazy to me because in in uh, my experience at school, I had to do so many different things based off of research, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm actually doing research because I'm, you know, looking at the 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 statistical information and all of the uh, the the hypotheses and everything that everyone's putting in into the into their papers and, and it's coming from an actual journal, right? To realize within the first year of school that even if a study is coming from Harvard, it can be it can be a piece of crap. Oh yeah. In other words, like the statistics, the 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 studies, that the research that goes into so many different things, almost I believe many times shouldn't have an impact. Obviously, there's a lot of different um, circumstances when. Yeah, it can be helpful, right? Right. But the thing is, is it's helpful. It's not the authority on all things, right? They right. happen to recreate a study 85,000 times, right? Then, obviously, medicine has evolved to what it is because of those kinds of things. But I'm um, coming from my world of behavioral science, social work. The most impactful things are case studies. Right. One person's experience with another person or person who all had different experiences with a certain method of, of whatever it be. And uh, that tends to be the most effective way to provide any kind of service or any kind of right. a- adjustment to someone's experience. Rather than manufacturing a situation and Precisely. seeing how people react Precisely. to that. Precisely. Like, I wonder how many people who are going to listen to this. Act- because, because there's so much bias that goes into just manufacturing that situation. Exactly. So, it's just kind of crazy to think about, right? Yeah. It's there's so many different <laughs> closed door conversations and deals that go into the world that we've created now that if you don't know anything about it or if you know very little about it, it's the authority and you don't contradict it, right? Or you don't challenge it. Right. Where again, like <laughs> everyone needs to challenge it for themselves at the very least if right. not for someone you know that they know in their life you know right and i've learned that especially through like in the medical world that I, in my whole life it's taught you know like oh the doctor knows these things but it's like we're all experiments <laughs> yeah. they don't know anything they're, guessing. <laughs> they're like um i mean this thing has happened a lot so let's see if that happens to you if it doesn't we'll try something else until you know just this idea Obviously, science has progressed so much, but they're, that we're almost conditioned to believe that there are authorities on these things right. when there's not. There, yeah, there. And so to believe, to be someone who believes that there is an authority on this thing, and then someone who's not that authority mm-hmm. to be speaking on it from their own experience, we automatically, our knee-jerk reaction is to devalue whatever that might be mm-hmm. because they don't hold the title that we're looking for. <laughs> But I'm no doctor. <laughs> Seriously, like my insides are imploding. It's one of those things. Like he, he even says here that um, the cop issue is much less racially oriented than we think. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Have you watched the 13th John McWhorter? <laughs> Do you know where the police actually started? No. Yeah. And, and again, he, he, I think what John McWhorter loves to do is take things out of context. Okay. Because in that same thing, again, if you logically take it out of context and put it in exactly today's moment, sure, 
it speaks the truth right now in this very moment because he says throw history out the window we can't do anything to change it and that's that's what like enrages me throw history out the window basically history is what tells us where we've been and history informs where we're going and where we are now but it's out of reach it's out of reach that's what he's saying it's out of reach we can't do anything to change it it's not about changing the past (laughs) that's that's what like infuriated me like every time i listened to this i was like I hate this more every time I listen to it. Like, it just is so closed. It's such a closed way, in my opinion, of thinking about any of these issues. Yeah. He, he, at, at one point, he talks about some stuff a couple times, but especially at the end, he brings up very vaguely, without stating anything specific, um, basically, he touches on CRT, right? Right. Um, and he's like, there's no reason to change the entire educational system to right. talk about like power dynamics and all these kinds of stuff. I'm like, sure. But I think that the way that the world is now, we should have the strong people on the left and the strong people on the right fighting for for what they want and compromise in the end. Right. So, sure, we don't massively change absolutely everything that's going to be taught in school, but there are changes that need to be made. And the thing that's interesting to me that I'm learning a lot through some research I'm doing right now is that CRT has become this like buzzword that it's not even what people are trying to implement into the schools. It's just the scary. It has critical in it. It has race in it. It has theory in it. So that's enough to scare people into thinking like this is not something that needs to be addressed. Also, like I don't know that there's a there's probably a way, but I don't know that it's like super important to make something as complicated as critical race theory digestible to children because that's not necessarily the point mm-hmm. really what people are wanting to change in schools is for there to be more diversity equity and inclusion mm-hmm. but people hear equity and they think socialism right that's not at all what it is people think equality <laughs> And equity are the same thing. They're not. People think that equity means taking away someone else's opportunities for the sake of somebody else who might not have those opportunities. That's not what equity is. Equity is making it possible for everyone to to come to the table. If they need a chair or a stool or a lounge chair or, or to a stand chair, whatever it is, you yeah, to stand. The, the, the situation right now in Utah, conservatives tend to be extremely against CRT. And w- with how things are now, we don't have enough of, of, a, of a willingness to learn more than what people are, are t- it's all back to this people don't think for themselves right no it's like it's like what like what i said before they want it to be e- easily digestible mm-hmm. they want mm-hmm. it somewhere where they can already where they already have access and the thing that's like so frustrating they entertaining they want to be entertained by right it. and the thing that's so frustrating about this whole like crt argument is that no one is arguing for crt to be taught in the schools maybe some people are but it, it, realistically that's not what people are pushing for And to think that diversity, equity, and inclusion is only going, like, to fight for that and to make that a bigger part of schools is only beneficial to children of color is missing the mark. Right. Because it also helps the LGBTQ students. It also helps the disabled students. It helps anybody who doesn't fit into this little box that we've made called the standard. Mm -hmm. 
It's interesting because he actually touches on the fact that the box, I guess, that we apparently still that a lot of people still have black people in is that they're also just poor. And he's like, no, come, we need to combat that. Most of them are actually middle class. And he talks about, yes, people would still argue, still trying to say that they, there's so much that is hard for them. That there's so many more hardships still for them. And it's like, dude, in, in varying degrees and in certain places, like, yes, that's definitely the case. So we shouldn't try and discount the fact that there are disparities. I, I don't know. He talked about disparity and racism. Well, and, he quotes and um, Ivor Max Kendi saying, where I see disparity, I see racism. Mockingly quotes him saying like like that's some big thing like you want a pat on the back for that I, because john mcwhorter doesn't think that that's the case right. it is whether it's racism or ableism or homophobia classism classism i feel like if people were to understand that fighting for one person's equity for one person's access to this life to be better actually helps all of us that it would be a lot easier to get through to people but i don't know what it will take for people to stop thinking of it as well if i if you get this that means i have to give up my life yeah low-key i feel like he is he makes statements that are like i'm of the elite and i like being there so that's why i'm going to combat the ideas that are you know in my books that i'm writing about Right. Because at the very beginning, initially, the way that he speaks, it makes it sound like he's always talking about his ideas. Right. But you have to get like, I had to listen to it several times to be like, oh, he's talking about what he thinks the woke racists, like that, that this is their perspective. Right. And then goes and usually to try and tear it down a little bit. Right. But a statement that he made around 835 was <clears throat> like, these, these people aren't crazy. They think they're on the sides of the angel. Right. Yeah. And um, they think that they found the answer, that they found the solution. You, you battle power differential. What's wrong with everything is that some people have undue power over others, especially when it comes to white skin having power over people with dark skin. And, and then he continues by saying, like, who were brought here against their will? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, that's the main thing. And, and so, um, yes, that, that may be like a, th- this is obviously more present Right. Especially now. Uh, But it's not like it hasn't been present always. Right. So I think my earlier statement of him being in a position of basically the elite. Right. Right. Having dark skin that he feels like it's unnecessary for anyone to agitate for as he used to write. Agitate for a, a a change in these power dynamics. Right. Because if we really were to address the issue of power dynamics, if he were if he were to have made a statement directly expressing the current power dynamics are not racist or that it have nothing to do with white supremacy, I'm like, no, nah, dude, you're wrong. The, the, the power dynamic as it is now doesn't seem to be changing, even with the efforts that a lot of people have made of like, you know what, I need I need to be involved. People in the community that I am grateful who have taken that step of, you know what, I can make the time. I can set aside and make sure that I have the means to participate in a way that I can ensure that some change happens now. And, uh, you know, in his experience, I'm, I'm curious as to what his students learn from him. If as a professor of linguistics, he has so many other avenues of, you know, he's writing all these books of his ideas and 
what more can he be perpetuating at the university? You know, like at a university, you're usually never just a faculty member or just a staff member. In fact, you don't have to be just a student. So what else, where else is he perpetuating his ideas? And at this point, would he also be an agitator towards making changes like those that were made when he first started to think about things, right? Right. Um, Well, it's he might not have spoken explicitly about power dynamics but he does say at 4022 he says yes there are racist hate groups but what institutions are those people taking over right they started those institutions right and he even mentions the insurrection on january 6th Mm -hmm. but talks about it as though it happened in a vacuum right no it's exactly after that that he says what institutions are those people taking over it's like no the, the okay how about the guy who led them Right. Right. So they're leading those institutions. (laughs) Like, and I mean, and that's, and I think, you know, like you said, he didn't, he didn't outright say like these power dynamics are not affected by white supremacy and racism, but he said it right in a different way. Like (laughs) continues to bother me to act like, oh yeah, there are racists out there, but that doesn't have anything to do with the way that the rest of us live our lives. Mm-hmm. Like, uh... His, his perspective um, on, on the solutions again, I just remembered one of the things that I was like, hmm, that was a pretty bold statement coming from him with everything else that he stated. He said, you know, give everyone vocational education. Everyone should be an electrician. If you're, if your electrician is black, the next time you see him, you know, ask him, does he feel, oppressed does he feel like whatever all these things and then he goes further to make a statement of that that black electrician won't get stopped by the cops according to whom according to him (laughs) i was like what it It, made me think of terry cruz so uh, in brooklyn 99 there's the episode there's the episode of (laughs) him going out to get the blanket or the bear or whatever it was that got left by cagney or lacy which one of his daughters and he gets stopped by the cop and he so that actually was based on an experience that he had ah. recently. So he was out somewhere and something happened like that. The situation he was stopped by a police officer for for being intimidating and scary, but being a big black man walking around. Well, and in talking about this, he likes to to keep saying that he's not he's not Candace Owens. People want to lump him in with Candace Owens. But everything that he's saying, like, especially with what you're talking about right now, that for a black man to have a job as an electrician makes him all of a sudden like racism is gone for him. That that's fully feeding into respectability politics, which is why it annoyed me that he was like, well, if, if black people just didn't sell drugs anymore, we wouldn't have this problem anymore. Like racism wouldn't be a thing anymore. Like if they just did the right things, if they just got jobs, if they just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, but I'm not saying people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I know it's more complicated than that. Do you? Do you know what's more complicated than that? He, he even says, and this is another thing, like talking about DEI, where there is racism, they're surely to follow all the other isms. Mm-hmm. He, he says here, we can have a racial reckoning, but not a racial reckoning that says you're all special needs people and it makes us good people to pretend that. That, that is a very obvious dig at disabled people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I don't know the the audacity of of a lot of his statements. Like he he talks with a certain speed, with a certain tone, and again, you can tell he's a linguist, right? Like I I think that there was that YouTube video that I I was showing you when I was trying to learn about CRT. Yeah, so yeah. I learn more where this this guy he talking he he is doing very well about giving factual information about CRT, right? right. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, like. <laughs> without changing his tone, without changing speed of his speech, very, very evenly transli- transitions into something that is completely nonsensical. And he does, you know, John Porter does the same. Right. He, he can go very, very easily from his own, speaking of his own experience to speaking uh, in regards to the experience of others to um, what he believes other people think. Right. To what he believes other people should think. Right. <clears throat> and with, again, with all of that, after listening to it like probably six times, <laughs> I was finally able to distinguish when he was speaking. Well, not always, actually, now that we've been talking about it, what I believe to be statements of his own versus statements uh, or what he believes others believe. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, anyway, with with his book, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> We'll see what happens there. And (laughs) I'm just like, I'm curious to see, because like with me reading about other people's like I've I've read some books based purely on other people's perspectives and others that are more based on on uh, historically accurate information and time, you know, dates and all that kind of stuff. Some statistics in there. And I'm, I'm curious to see what he muddles together, what he muddled together within the last year in this book. Because as much as I agree with the fact that being performative is not helpful, not helpful. And I, and I agree with that too. Like that was maybe the one thing that he said that I was (laughs) like, yeah, "Yeah." he pulls you in with it, you know, and he's like, oh, okay. Okay. But as you continue to listen to him, it's more of, he he tends to be more contrary to what he is purporting to, to be expressing. Right. His, his idea of, the solution, the solution to racism. Well, the solution to woke racists. Right. I don't know. I, I probably will listen to it again after we talk here because I, it'll give me a different perspective on, on what he's saying and how he's saying it. Because as much as he's talking about woke racism and you know how he came to believe these things about white liberals and the people being active right now and again. Not not even just white people, right. but black people too. He made a point to say that. Right. That will be different. Yeah. I just, I think it's, I don't know, as, as you were talking, I, I thought about, he's claiming to try and call out performativeness with what I feel is a different kind of performativeness. Mm-hmm. Performance is maybe what the word I should use. <laughs> but... This performance that there's nothing we can do about racism and it's not as big a deal as people want you to make it out to be. If we just perform the way that white people want us to, racism will go away. Yeah, that's basically what he's saying. And it's just incorrect. (laughs) It's crazy to think that, you know, a man of his, whatever you might want to call it, stature. uh, Intellect. uh, (laughs) That that he's... Taking advantage, honestly, of of the situation, trying to be as a speaker. I mean, I guess he's honestly just saying no one has to buy his book. No, no. one has to read his book. No, no one. Um, well, almost no one has to take his classes, <laughs> but he's he's using the platforms that he can because people will listen. People will 
maybe unknowingly will be tricked into maybe believing some of the things that he believes. Right. And that's that's why it was so frustrating to hear on Radio West mm-hmm. in this place where it's already so hard to get people to even realize that there is a problem to have a black man come in and say, it's not really what they're making it out to be. Don't listen to them. Right. I can't tell you how many times people used Candace Owens to say, well, like, well, there are there are black moderate people who have been shouting from the rooftops for years that people that these other black people need to just stop putting themselves in detrimental situations that they need to stop being lazy it it just was frustrating because i'm like this is the last thing that we needed in this area especially because they talk about all the time on npr that their their demographic is white women exactly who i had the biggest problem with was an educated white woman i doubt she listens to npr because socialism public radio but just that because i know so many people are on like teetering on the edge of like this is confusing i don't know which way to think Mm -hmm. that to then hear this i can only imagine how many people are like oh this makes a lot of sense to me i i can grasp what he's saying and it makes sense to me in my experience i don't have to put myself outside of my own experience to understand this so i'm just going to take this and run with it right and, and actually even now thinking again, again about his three solutions and about the way he's being like, you can't like, it's not good enough to just be performative. We need, we don't need this. We don't need this. You need to actually do something. So here are my solutions and the war on drugs. Okay. I can't do that. Um, I can teach my kids how to read. Right. Um, will I teach other kids how to read? I don't, probably not. <laughs> and again, I forgot the other one. War on drugs. Vocational. Oh, <laughs> Vocational. So I can always advocate for that, right? Right. I can also always advocate for the war, ending the war on drugs. But then again, I can also go to my doctor for whatever really nilly thing and, and get opiates. So whatever. Hey, when you listen to the book, I want to know if there are any concrete ways that he's suggesting to people to do those things. Right. Exactly. Because I get the performance for performance's sake isn't really helpful. But to say that, like, all of the performance is useless is silly to me because without someone being out there showing what's happening, talking about it in what sometimes might be perceived as a performative way, we wouldn't know about it because we're not learning about it from any other place. Plenty of white parents, United parents, Natalie Klein are doing their utmost to make sure that kids continue to not know about these things. Mm -hmm. I thought that I had that like, he he doesn't seem to provide realistic, realistic solutions. Right. Nothing that can truly be accomplished by anyone who might listen to him. Right. I mean, to me, it just felt like telling someone that how they're agitating for change is wrong, but not really offering any solutions either. Mm -hmm. And if you're not offering any solutions, you're just whining. Right. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Wild. Well, I enjoyed talking to you about this. Yeah, me too. Thanks for being willing to spend the time. Of course. That's the one thing I was like, I was like, ah, I know that I'm going to listen to this more than once. Yeah. So it's probably going to be the same on your end, especially with like the way you are. You're very diligent. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. No. <laughs> diligent about the way that you do. Things, so I appreciate it. I appreciate the time. So mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Love you. Love you too. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. Hopefully there was something in this conversation that helped shed some light on these issues or helped you think about it in a different way. It felt like a very pressing conversation to have, 
especially considering the things that are going on in Davis County School District right now, and probably all over the rest of Utah, because we know that these things don't happen in a vacuum. But we can't let thinking like this, like what John McWhorter has to say, keep the change that needs to happen from coming. There's so much that we can do to get involved, but first we have to understand what it is that is really at the heart of these issues. So don't let anyone tell you that it's not as big a deal as people are making it out to be. It's a big deal. Lives are hanging in the balance. Thank you for listening. Love you. Bye.